being the United States and the leader of the most powerful country in the world requires delegation. It requires good management of the assets that are available. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. Calling into the studio from California's FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. And joining me in D.C. is Yochi Driesen, FP's managing editor for news and author of The Invisible Front. And a new guest that I'm now pleased to welcome to the show, Derek Chalet, counselor and senior advisor for security and defense policy at the German Marshall Fund. He's also author of the forthcoming book, The Long Game, How Obama Defied Washington and Redefined America's Role in the World, out later this month. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So in the last episode of of the ER, we talked a little bit about Derek's book, The Long Game, How Obama Defied Washington and Redefined America's Role in the World, uh, which uh, everybody should have gone out and and purchased by this point. Uh, And if you haven't, shame on you, you're listening to this podcast, you don't really have a life. Um, You know, why are you not in a bookstore buying a book that's every bit as nerdy as the podcast? (laughs) And I mean that as a compliment, Derek, and you'll actually get one of our mugs. We've had mugs made that say, I'm one of the nerds who listens to the ER. (laughs) We also have mugs saying, I'm one of the two listeners to the (laughs) ER, so I hope you don't expect that this is really going to push your sales. Uh, Having said that, by the way, folks who are listening to this, if you submit an idea via Twitter for an episode and we actually do your idea – we will send you one of those mugs. Ooh, a coveted mug. A coveted <laughs> mug. Um, and there are not many of these mugs. And um, knowing the place we purchased them from in China, many of them are probably in small pieces anyway, in the boxes we've got. But we'll find you a whole one and we'll send it to you if you've got something of value to, 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 to say to us. And I think we could also assume the cups made in China are at least 80% lead. I was going to so say, are they? <laughs> be careful as you fill it with liquid and yeah, put it no, to your Under mouth. no circumstances use these to feed your children. Children should not. However, if you have friends who are in the Trump campaign, go right ahead. Anyway, turning to the Trump campaign, turning to the election, uh, in the past couple of weeks, we've heard a lot about foreign policy in this election. Hillary Clinton made a big speech in San Diego, uh, about 80% of which was blowing up Donald Trump. I wrote something recently which said the the uh, only challenge she had in that respect was finish figuring out where to stop so that people could get home in time to tuck their <laughs> kids into bed. There's lots to critique about Donald Trump. Uh, but I felt, and I, you know, I'm on the record as saying you got to stop Trump. The only way to do it is to vote for Hillary Clinton and that I think she's exceptionally well qualified. I was a little let down by the speech because I thought it fell into a trap. And the trap was, which I call the Trump trap, by the way, because- Trademark uh, pending. Trademark Mm -hmm. pending, exactly. That it's very easy to spend all your time critiquing him. And if that's what you do, then you don't focus on the new ideas. And you need to have new ideas for two reasons. One, the world has changed and we need to understand what is to be done to keep us strong and to be the kind of leaders we need to be. Um, But the other is- Hillary Clinton needs to inspire. You can't argue against the irrational arguments of an irrational actor like Trump 
with rational counterarguments because those will not resonate with the public. And what Trump is doing is actually – and I was thinking about this the other day and it like filled me with deep fear and loathing. That if you look at the last few presidential candidates who have run for office in the United States and won, the vast majority of them have had very little experience and have run on the premise that they essentially were outsiders um, who would primarily be a change of pace, whether it was Jimmy Carter or Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or George W. Bush or Barack Obama – not a lot of foreign policy experience, George H.W. Bush being the exception, and outsiderism being the thing that wins. Well, Trump's the outsider and Hillary looks like the insider. And so she's got to say, I'm different. I'm not just the establishment. Or she may fall to the same kind of fate that um, befell establishment candidates in the past. So what I'd really like to focus on in this episode is what do we think the big ideas, the big new ideas that the next president of the United States ought to embrace? Derek, you've just finished a book. You've looked at the Obama eight years. You've been in the midst of this stuff. You're a student of it. You are in many ways you know, kind of the future of, of U.S. foreign policy. Um, and, and by the way, those of you who are listening at home don't know that Derek is injured and has a cast on his leg and is sort of limping around just as the United States is on the international stage at the moment. <laughs> we all saw that coming. Yeah. We're just waiting for it. Well played. That was good. Um, <laughs> Nothing but net, David. No, thank you. I'm going to come back stronger. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to come back stronger. Come yeah, OK. Um, just just one. Just I just want one big idea for Hillary. But we are collecting. We're going to get out those little mugs we have and we're going to collect big ideas for Hillary and we will send them to her. So – First, just one one background point. I think uh, – and I know the last time we got together, we talked about Obama's record, his legacy. I think it's important to point out Obama largely has set out what he campaigned in 2008 to do. And we can argue for as we will for a long time about whether did it effectively or whether that was the right thing or not. But this wasn't a, a bait and switch, you know, where he campaigned in one set of policies in 2008 and then he governed in a totally different way. I mean whether it's on climate change or – engaging with countries like Iran or getting us out of Iraq or surging in Afghanistan to get us out eventually out of Afghanistan or trying to diversify the tool set for the United States, not just on military might, but elevating diplomacy and development. He's, he's done a lot of that. Okay, so, look, okay, but he's that's, done. It's okay, no, no, understood. Okay, so, Barack Obama so is the David but, Schwimmer of yeah, foreign policy, okay? Here's he's the, last here's, year's hit. Let's so move on. Here's the question. I mean, first of all, I think that, that – you know, it starts with your premise. I mean, the premise is is that we're in need of big ideas, right? Clearly, campaigns are about the future. Bill Clinton was, of course, understood that better than anyone. You've got to have a vision for the future to be successful. It's important to note the Republican vi- vision of the future is just reverse everything Obama's done. There's the apocalypse no, now. There's no positive agenda there. Right. It's just let's just unwind everything that's happened in the last eight years to do what I don't know. One idea that that it seems to me that is a big idea, and it's one that certainly President Obama worked on, and fair enough, fairly enough, previous presidents have as well, Republican and Democrat. The the kind of global architecture, how's that for a nerdy term? The global Mm. architecture still doesn't really work very well for current realities. And President Obama tried to elevate the G20 uh, early in the administration, remember when he came into office, there was a lot of talk about the G's, whether it's going to be a G2, we still had a G8, 
uh, whether the G20 would be the new high table. It just hasn't worked out as well. Uh, as, as we have another podcast on that called just the G spot. <laughs> and that we, that's all there. we talk about. That's the sound of me spitting out coffee. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah um, Thank you. But uh, of course, I think, I think probably at least the last three administrations have tried to tackle things like UN Security Council reform and having a Security Council that actually looks a little more like the power realities of of today. I mean, that's a that's a big project. Uh, it's a big idea. Whether it inspires the American people to pull the lever for one candidate over another, I doubt it. Gold star. I give you gold star. That is one of the ones. We have to remake the international architecture. We have to find a new way to lead. We have to start with the transatlantic alliance. We need to look at the Pacific in a new way as the Indo-Pacific region. American leadership requires new institutions and new ideas, including revitalizing the WMD regime mm-hmm. of the world, the not, NPT 2.0, something to deal with the connected world and the internet and the internet economy and internet security and cyber and those issues which doesn't exist, something to deal with the environment. The WTO is a mess. These things, these alphabet soups, which the public doesn't care about, can be recast as saying America needs to lead in a new way. We need to work with our allies in new ways. After World War II, we rebuilt the world. It is another watershed like that. We need to do it again. It's an excellent point. Corey, top that. I I don't think I can top that, although I strongly endorse what both of you just said. My suggestion for a big new idea that would strengthen America and cause others to look at us differently and more positively would be an integration of North America, starting with a common energy grid between Canada, the United States, and Mexico, and building on that cooperation to expand the perimeter of our strength to, to re- and rely more closely on two countries with whom our security and our prosperity is inextricably intertwined, and we're missing a huge number of opportunities to capitalize on that. That's an excellent point. I, you know, I, the, the, it is arguable that the most important country in the world for the United States is Mexico, but it is pushed into the backseat all the time. We just sort of take it for granted. But Actually, in, I would argue right now there's one candidate who's like putting it on the hood of the car, or right. on the on the on the bumper. Right. Well, no, there is, and 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 it just underscores the folly of his policy. Not only is it racist. But from a foreign policy and a domestic policy perspective, whether you're dealing with energy policy, immigration policy, economic policy, trade policy, we could get more benefits on the trade front from improving NAFTA, NAFTA 2.0, than probably any other kind of deal simply because there is so much trade here and incremental differences are so big. So doing more in North America, taking care of the neighborhood. It's a little bit like what Hillary Clinton talked about in her San Diego speech of saying strength begins at home. We have to reinvent our economy for a new world, a hyper-productive world, a hyper-competitive world that needs new infrastructure. That infrastructure should not stop, as Corey says, at our borders. It should extend into the rest of our neighborhood and give us the advantages of scale that that would give us. Yucky, these guys are on a roll fantastically brilliant stuff. You're from Chicago. Try and overcome that. Uh, home of the soon-to-be world champion Chicago Cubs. Thank you all very much. Um, I think if we disaggregate okay. the question a little bit. By the bit. way, that's a hint, folk, that we're entering into fantasy land here no matter what <laughs> follows. No, Yoki's right. The Cubs are going to take it this year. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Keep Derek, do you have an opinion? 
You know, I'm a I'm a college football fan, so that's uh, how, you know baseball to me is not the. What's your college football? Nebraska team? Cornhuskers. Mm. I bleed Husker the red. The helmet stands for knowledge. Yeah, they're easy there. Easy there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Yucky. I mean, I, I think if the question is what is the idea she has that resonates politically, or if the question is what no, is the idea that actually foreign policy, big foreign policy, right? To my mind, I think the one that would be of most use for her in a weird way, both politically and substantively, maybe more the latter, is trying to be have more clarity about relationships we have around the world. So be willing to say Pakistan, for the most part, is not an ally. Be willing to condemn Egypt and say it was a coup and not sort of be mealy-mouthed about it. Be willing to say Russia is no longer a U.S. ally and is, if anything, a rival more and more and more Wait, that's ever I want to see if he's about to say be willing to say that Israel is a racist apartheid regime. Silence from the <laughs> Crickets. Crickets. Yeah, okay. Go on. But just – I think what, in some ways what, what Trump is tapping into and I think what some foreign leaders are tapping into is wanting to hear America say something that is not necessarily mealy mouth, not bouncing back and forth, but to be clear when possible. I think that would be a very useful thing for her both substantively and politically. That's interesting. Speak the truth about our allies. I'm not sure that counts as a big idea, although it's kind of refreshing. Or in some ways, speak our truth about our non-allies. You know, don't say Pakistan this, Pakistan that, but just be honest and say Pakistan, it's not coincidental that every leader we want to whack of any seniority is in Pakistan. Just say so. It's not, it's not coincidence that Egypt is willing to toss a leader out whenever it doesn't like that leader. But just say what we all, I think, in our gut know to be true, that Pakistan is not an ally. Russia is not an ally. And say so. Derek. You worked in the Pentagon for a while. The United States unquestionably overspends on defense. Uh, we make a policy choice as a country that we are going to spend so much on defense that we're not going to have enough for infrastructure and education. We only have a limited amount of discretionary spending. Most of our money goes to entitlements and obligations. So we're stuck with this. And if we say, if as both parties have done, you know, we we're it's going to be an incremental debate about whether you know the, about the level, and continue to outspend every other threat by multiples of multiples, then we're choosing not to invest in other sources of our strength. Is there something a candidate like Hillary Clinton can do to talk about the modernization of our military that also rationalizes spending? Sure, and I think you know she. First of all, I. I Take some issue with we unquestionably spend too much on defense. Certainly, the defense budget okay, well, has that guarantees you'll continue to be employed in Washington has, for has, a long time. Right, exactly, but the defense budget has come down over the last eight years, and uh, you know one of Secretary Ash Carter's current initiatives is to try to get greater efficiencies in the budget. There's no question, uh, and Congress obviously, obviously is interested in that as well. Clinton, as Secretary of State, was very keen to try to get more money for the non-defense parts of, of our, our foreign budget, uh, foreign assistance, development, uh, and diplomacy. The State Department's woefully under-resourced, always has been. Uh, it's always tough to make that case on the Hill for more money for, for diplomats. Um, but I, I, yes, I mean, I think that's, that's an area that she will clearly focus on uh, as president, although I would not expect drastic decreases in the defense budget at all. I think you're right. The modernization agenda is something that that she has embraced as a candidate. She will embrace as a president. This so-called third offset, that's another nerdy term that, that uh, 
Ash Carter, uh, who has some pretty serious nerdy credentials, uh, has has coined as defense secretary. That's going to really catch on. <laughs> That's going to catch on outside the belt. But this right? idea that we've yeah. got to get ahead uh, and be part of the next technology leap when it comes to defense spending and and forge new relationships where out where Corey is in Silicon Valley. Uh, to ensure that we can outpace our competitors there. I think absolutely that's something that Clinton would embrace, and that's a big idea. But, I mean, the reality is, of course— Wait a minute. I want to jump in on this, too, because okay. um, I want to pour a bucket of aren't, cold— Aren't you, aren't you like, a, like a professor of defense spending out there at Stanford? <laughs> I think I may be the only conservative who does think the Defense Department has too much money. And the nice. proof is— That's why is- we love you, Corey. In the year of our Lord 2016, we still have two programs of record that are fighter planes designed with pilots in the cockpit at a time in which unmanned aerial and non-aerial vehicles are so obviously the wave of the future. Our incapacity to end those two programs and respend that money is the proof that money's actually not tied enough in DOD. But the bucket of cold water. Also, wanna... also, by the way, the fact that we have four air forces, the fact that our Navy is built around carrier battle groups, the fact that we have two expeditionary forces, the fact that we have to have two separate supply chains to go and fight any long land war, you know, the fact that we spend more money on military bans than we spend on diplomats in the United States also all suggest that, right? Okay, so I would like to fight specifically about those issues in another podcast because I disagree with you on most of them. No, no, particular- I know you're very, very strongly in favor of all those bands. <laughs> <laughs> but the bucket of cold water I wanted to pour on Derek's head. Uh, the head hey, of- welcome to the <laughs> ER, Derek. It's <laughs> It's been five minutes Remember, since somebody's Corey, dumped on you. I'm injured here. Yeah. I'm injured over here. Tim would you know, be a force for institutional change of this positive nature. Because in fact, she was not a force for institutional change when she was the Secretary of State. She did one terrific thing, which was commence a process of a quadrennial diplomacy and development review. Unfortunately, that review in no way connected to her budgets or to her practice of foreign policy as Secretary of State. By the way, I just want to interact, interject because our audience is so deeply nerdy. Okay, there will be a mug for anybody who can prove they read the QDDR uh, <laughs> because, because it is the apotheosis of Washington nerd documents. Uh, so I want to mug David because I not only read the QDDR, oh, wow. but wrote a book about why the State Department underperforms as an institution when them doing that better is crucially important to our country and money is not the solution to making them better at this. Corey, as we have said often before, you are a nerd goddess. <laughs> I know you don't mean it as a compliment, David, but I'm going to take it as one. Yeah. Well, no, I mean it as a compliment. If only Rosa were here to fight for her title. (laughs) Uh, But but my point is that Clinton demonstrated no commitment to the kind of institutional refinement, managerial improvement that Derek's talking about. My sole hope is that she will... Uh, put in place people like Derek Chalet who will do that in her name. Well, 
I, you know, I, I certainly I hope that Derek ends up in an important job and forgets that he's done these episodes of the <laughs> ER when he does. But um, my caution to you, Corey, is this is a really good point, and uh, you know, I know you believe it deeply, but just don't say it on anything that's got you know bigger following than the ER, because really we can't afford to have Hillary lose. You know, we we can't we can't do anything to increase the chances that Donald Trump has the opportunity to gild the front portico of the White House and start running beauty pageants out of the East Wing. That's my, my favorite line in Clinton's speech. Major State Department foreign policy initiative: the the marketing of Miss Miss Universe candidates. As American ambassadors, yeah, that all that's, that's that gonna, all our ambassadors would be Miss Universe. Can't, right. People would go that's up right. and say, what, right. "And what would what are the what is the policy of the United States?" Well, I'm hoping for peace, and I hope we can all get along. <laughs> I mean, in, in her her anti-Trump, her wondrously anti-Trump speech, my favorite line because I'd forgotten he said it was that he has foreign policy experience because he judged Miss Universe in Russia. That exactly. was just spectacular. That was like, I see Russia from Alaska, says yeah, Governor Palin. It takes us to the next step. Actually, it, it's worse than Palin. It is, oh. although, Corey, thanks to your party's descent <laughs> into absolute chaos, uh, it is the, it, you know, it is, it is the, the natural extension of Palin, which is. is the I natural agree. extension of Pat Buchanan, which is the natural extension of policies that, you know, suggest that all government is bad and play to the worst kind of demagoguery associated with, quote, values voting. Yeah, I mean, that play to white males are endangered and threatened, be they by professionalized women, be they by anyone of any color or any faith other than Christianity. Yeah, it's it's like it is everything we decry in other countries that we see here. You know, Derek, one question I was curious about the critique you hear, I think, from virtually everyone who served in the White House and in, in the administration writ large, whether it's Hagel, whether it's Panetta, on and on and on and on, is White House micromanagement, an NSC that is way too big, and frankly, Susan Rice. I mean, you hear her name tossed around not positively by virtually everyone who served in a high-level position at DOD and, and elsewhere. Do you have confidence that— Derek, you served at DOD. What do you think of <laughs> Susan, Susan Rice? Rice. <laughs> yeah. but, but do you have confidence that—I mean, would Hillary just continue the sort of— White House micromanages everything through a massive, overly sized NSC? Or, I mean, do you see that as the likeliest path of a Hillary presidency? So, once again, there's this kind of mythology about White House micromanagement. And some of my former bosses have been uh, critics. Um, And look, I. I, It's uh, a mythology that's been. Perpetuated I, by all the former cabinet yeah. so, secretaries in the this, government. This is there's this certain amnesia about this argument, though. That's interesting to me. I mean, I look. I served at the Pentagon. I served at the White House. I served at the State Department. I had I saw it from all three sides, including you know being partly responsible for probably the micromanagement at times when he that, was between jobs. He was micromanaging himself. Right. right? Exactly. But. Uh, you know, this is not this is kind of garden variety dis- interagency dysfunction. I mean, this is not Ronald Reagan who flushed through six national security advisors, two of whom were indicted for crimes committed while in office. Right. I mean, this is not uh, even there's certainly not George W. Bush that had colossal fights uh, among cabinet secretaries, a kind of rogue operation in the office of the vice president. This is a classic a, Obama defense. No, but, we're not as bad as the no, no, national security but, advisors but, who were indicted. No, the point is it's, an, it's, it's inherent in the system 
for there to be tension. Is is the NSC too big? Absolutely. It's going to to Susan's great credit. It's going to be uh, no bigger when Obama leaves office than it was when Bush left office in two thousand eight. So although there was some growth during the course of the Obama years, they've been working hard through attrition to skinny that down to at least have no growth compared to administrations. By the way, the moment to do those cuts, in my view, is during the transition. We tried to do it in 2008. We thought about doing it in 2008. I was on the transition team then. And for a variety of reasons, it didn't get done. And I think that was a lost opportunity. So I think hopefully Secretary Clinton, uh, six months from now, will make some of those tough decisions. Actually, what's interesting is I also think that Clinton, because of her experience in the interagency as Secretary of State, more than any president I could think of other than George H.W. Bush, uh, in 1988, has uh, has as much experience in managing the interagency and participating in it as anyone. And I think there's no doubt those lessons will be applied to as, uh, as she uh, acts as president. But I think also we're in this age where it's very hard to overcome, I think, White House micromanagement because there is an expectation from those of you in the press that the White House is going to be accountable for everything. I mean, I know this... When I served there, it was the sense that uh, we wanted to push uh, responsibility out to the agencies. But then whenever anything went wrong, it was seen as a cop out to have said, well, it was the agency's fault. It's actually the White House fault. So there, I think in this particularly in this media environment, uh, it's it's very difficult really for any president of any party to to break out of this perception that there's going to be micro. Look, you can point at Yucky all you want when you say those of you in the press. But I'm not in the press. I'm at like sort of thoughtful <laughs> observer who happens to have an you're, office. You're like a mogul. You're like I, a mogul. Not a mogul. It's more like a kind of a humble sage. That's the way I like to look at we, it. We prefer the Yiddish word macher. Macher. Isn't that how you look at it, Corey? Absolutely. That's how I look at it. I do think that um, there will be two conflicting tendencies in a Clinton presidency. Um, doctrinally, she clearly favors a well-functioning interagency along the Scowcroft lines. But in practice, that's actually not how she ran the State Department. And at, and I don't just mean the offline email server. I mean, she All tends right, to well, have close... saw that one coming too. Oh, my God. Really? She has a close group of longtime advisors around her that she carries from job to job, and they tend to be important substantive policy advisors. You mean so, like Hamilton, <laughs> Jefferson, Madison, <laughs> Aberdeen? I, I think these are going to be conflicting tendencies in an in a Clinton presidency. But but Corey, name name a single presidency or Secretary of State, for that matter, where that hasn't existed. No, I mean, no, but that, there isn't one to name the reality. Yeah. I've written two books on how the National Security Council and the foreign policy establishment is structured. Of course, people have close advisors. The question is whether they get the balance right between having close advisors and using the full resources of the United States government to get advice and to execute their policy properly. And the reality is that often it gets out of whack for one reason or another. I happen to believe that during the Obama administration, it became too White House-centric. But I also believe, based on talking to Clinton uh, campaign people and also the rest of the foreign policy establishment, where there is actually, you know, they don't all agree on everything all the time, despite what, you know, sort of 
people west of the Potomac may think, the, the, the reality is that there's pretty much a consensus now. The NSC should be smaller. The White House should focus on developing strategy. It ought to use the agencies to execute policy. It can't let you know the, the rest of the world just sort of email the White House and bypass this whole process. Being the United States and the leader of the most powerful country in the world requires delegation. It requires good management of the assets that are available to the president. Uh, I, I think this is a you know it's a good place to draw this to a close because you know managing the United States government well would be a really important thing for Hillary Clinton to do. It is not, however, something she can actually run on. Because nobody gives a crap except for the listeners of the ER and they're what? Now we're up to 11 or something like that. I think my mom might tune in. Actually, Your mom so hopefully will tune in. She won't necessarily pay attention. OK. In that case, Derek's mom – look, we didn't mean the stuff in the earlier podcast. Well, no. The stuff about him being brilliant. You did a great job with him. Uh, we we're just giving him a hard time with the book because you know that's what we do and it was fun. Corey – you get 30 last seconds and then so does everybody else and then we're going to leave and everybody can finish on the treadmill or whatever the hell it is they're doing while they're listening to this. Okay, for my 30 last seconds, I think there are lots – I would like to see us do another podcast on opportunities we're missing because having just come back from Cuba, one I can think of is thinking through the when and how we lift the embargo. President Obama – isn't actually going to get the embargo lifted. But a policy that, for example, President Clinton might want to consider is tying the lifting of the embargo to the kind of government that comes to Cuba in 2018. Does right, the military hey. take over okay. gone or not? Okay, you've used up your 30 seconds talking about a trivial country with no significance for the United States. The way to lift the embargo is to lift the embargo and move on to matters of significance. You know, when you look at the Caribbean, I'm worried about Puerto Rico's economic condition. I'm worried about Zika. I'm, you know, and, and Trinidad and Tobago is significantly more important to us than Cuba. Yucky. I wonder, as this election goes, for, goes to the end, two things. One, when does somebody die at a Trump rally, which I'm 100 percent sure is going to happen? It's going to be awful and violent, but it's going to happen. Two, is it possible that as cynical as we all are, probably warranted, that you actually can win an election by saying, I'm not crazy. That guy is nuts. That guy is off the charts wacko. And if you would just continually sort of, although it's not sexy, persuade people that you are not that person, maybe that does get you. This this one election, maybe that wins. Well, just to respond to that very quickly, certainly it's happened. <laughs> campaign. It's, Hillary, she's not crazy. Well, I mean, 1964 but, is one example. And I would argue also 1972 is another on the other side where – uh, the elections were largely won not on policy issues, but on the sense that the opposing candidate was seen as dangerous and and not right for office. But just to close, maybe in the spirit of of ER on something more nerdy, and it gets to this the point that uh, Corey's talked about and David, you've talked about in terms of how we can reform our government and a big idea. We're, we're still too slow as a government. I mean, those of us who served in government all experience that when it comes to trying to help people uh, and whether it's using the military or whether certainly in diplomacy and development, uh, we, it, we're, we're too cumbersome. Uh, we lumber along and, and oftentimes we find ourselves caught behind curves. And f oftentimes that's because of having to deal with Congress, having to deal with laws that, that were put there all for a good reason, but maybe are outdated. 
and and we see we find ourselves not as fleet of foot as we should be uh, when dealing with problems as they arise, and that's a constant frustration of presidents. Of uh, secretaries of state, of secretaries of defense, that when decisions get made, it takes far too long for them to get implemented. And I don't think that's because of laziness or because people are against the policy. Oftentimes, it's just because of the grinding bureaucracy. This is a bit pie in the sky because I think every administration comes in office wanting to get it better. But I think it's something that uh, a new president could try to take on uh, in the first six months and, and try to improve things. I think it's vitally important that the next president of the United States take a step away from the news cycle, take a step away from reacting to the problems of the past 15 years and focus on the fact that the planet is changing more rapidly right now than possibly at any time in human history, that we're within a decade of having every human being on the planet connected in a man-made system, the internet, for the first time, that that creates one cultural ecosystem for the planet, a new platform for warfare, a new platform for economics, will change what we think of as money, as war, as peace, as identity, as governance, as law, that we really need to rethink what foreign policy is, what the world is going to look like, uh, and do so in a way that recognizes um, the watershed nature of these changes and that it requires new thinking, not incremental change. That's going to require new people too. Uh, and I think one of the things that Hillary Clinton could do as a candidate that I would find encouraging is to appear in public talking to people who weren't part of the Beltway echo chamber, who were not former thises and former thats, who did not play a role in this administration and that one, who have an ax to grind with some old legacy, but are people who understand the nature of these coming changes uh, and are willing to not just hit reset, but have an idea about what is entirely new that is to come. Uh, that will be a subject for some future podcast, as will, I'm sure, um, Corey's counterattack on Cuba. And uh, we uh, hope you will join us for that podcast. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Yuchi. And thank you, listener out there, possibly in, in asleep, in, asleep <laughs> possibly slumped over your box wine at the University of Nebraska, wondering when the former glory will ever return. Uh, that's, it, that's cold. It, that's cold. It, Accurate. It won't. <laughs> cold. It, it, it won't ever return. But, uh, you know, for those of us who are sick of the SEC, <laughs> I kind of hope that it does. Talk to you all again soon. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.